Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and love all things tech. And last week, I did an episode about whether or not we could ever develop an artificially intelligent machine that could understand not just what we say, but what we actually mean when we employ stuff like sarcasm or metaphors. Today, we're going to look at some notable instances of machines behaving badly after well-meaning designers gave those machines a bit too much freedom in this regard. Now, the stories I'm going to focus on are, on the surface, pretty funny. But they illustrate a real challenge in artificial intelligence because designing a system that does what you intended to do is harder than it might seem, especially as you make that system more and more autonomous. It can behave in ways that you were not able to predict. So this is a topic that science fiction authors have covered extensively in fiction. There's something of a trope around the concept of the artificially intelligent system that causes harm in an effort to help. So there's a classic thought experiment, and it revolves around asking a super intelligent machine to bring about world peace, right? You, de- you design the supercomputer, it's smarter than any human, and you say, I want you to solve the problem of world peace. I want there to be world peace. And the machine runs the calculations, and it comes to the conclusion that as long as there are two or more people living on the planet, world peace cannot be assured as there is always the chance for conflict. And so the superintelligent machine wipes out humanity, or at least everybody but one person. This is clearly a worst-case scenario of artificial intelligence behaving in a way you did not anticipate. And it's light years away from the stories I'm going to talk about today, but it is good to remember that while the incidents I'm going to cover are largely humorous to us today, they illustrate that intelligence is a very tricky subject. Also on that matter, uh, intelligence itself is pretty difficult to define, uh, along with other concepts like consciousness. These are very hard to nail down and define in concrete terms. And in computer science, artificial intelligence covers an enormous amount of ground. I've talked about this in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. Someone who's working in image recognition is working on one aspect of artificial intelligence. The same is true for voice recognition or natural language processing, machine learning, pathfinding. So while I'm talking about AI, I'm not talking about thinking like a human being. I'm not talking about creating a machine that can uh, internalize and associate ideas the way a human can. The machines I'm going to be covering are processing information and arriving at conclusions, but they are not thinking the same way that people do. So let's start off with Watson. And I mentioned IBM's Watson platform in the sarcasm episode a couple of times, and that's because it's one of the more visible artificial intelligence platforms out there right now. And that was by design. This was helped in no small part. In fact, (laughs) The reason why we know so much about it, I would argue, is because of Watson's appearance on a couple of special episodes of the game show Jeopardy back in 2011. The actual project that would become Watson began back in 2006 when IBM research executives were trying to come up with a grand challenge. Big G, big C. These are really ambitious projects inside IBM that are meant to challenge teams and come up with solutions to really difficult problems that aren't necessarily tied directly to a product or a commercial application. 
It's all about setting a very difficult objective that should IBM succeed in achieving that objective would be very notable. It would get IBM a lot of attention. So the company would benefit one way or another through these grand challenges, but it wouldn't necessarily be tied to let's launch X product by year Y. So they tend to be really, really difficult engineering problems. So, for example, a previous grand challenge that IBM tackled was Deep Blue, which was the chess-playing computer that defeated a grandmaster at chess a decade earlier. The then-director of IBM Research was Paul Horn. Now, Paul Horn thought perhaps the best challenge to tackle was to create a machine that could beat the Turing test. And I've talked about the Turing test many times, but just as a quick reminder— When you boil it down to the way we mean the Turing test today, which is, by the way, a little different from what Alan Turing was proposing way back when, essentially now we're talking about a machine that can communicate so convincingly that a person on the other end of that communication, typically using some sort of text-based method of communicating like instant messenger, would not realize that they were communicating with a machine versus a human being. They would not be able to tell the difference. If they could not reliably tell the difference between a machine and a person, you would say that the machine has passed the Turing test. Now, ultimately, Horn and IBM researchers decided that that challenge, while exceedingly difficult, wouldn't really get the attention that something a little more flashy might so they said, well, while this is a hard problem and it would be very interesting within artificial intelligence circles, the general public really wouldn't care. So they looked around at other possible applications that would overlap that idea. Eventually, they settled on a computer that would be able to compete on Jeopardy. Now, Jeopardy is a pretty tricky game show. The clues often depend upon wordplay and nuance. And you might have to combine information about two separate concepts and apply them to a single answer for any one given clue. So here's an example of what I mean by that, because there's wordplay and this association. Uh, Let's say that you have a category called fictional collaborations, where you're supposed to combine the titles of two works to create a new work. And the clue might be something like, this was the result of Margaret Mitchell teaming up with Bette Midler. And the correct response would be, what is gone with the wind beneath my wings? Because you have to form all your answers in the form of a question. Well, Jeopardy, sometimes it takes more than just knowing some facts, right, or trivia. You you need to know that to play well in Jeopardy, but you need more than that. You have to make associations. So I would need to know that Margaret Mitchell was the author of Gone with the Wind, and I would need to know that Bette Midler had recorded a song called Wind Beneath My Wings, And then I would need to combine those two to create this answer. And humans can do this because we're really good at associative thinking, which is all about linking one thought or idea to another. Computers, as a rule, are not very good at this. So initially, Watson was a pure research project, and there were no commercialization requirements attached to it, which gave the research team the freedom to blue-sky their approach within the limitations of their budget. And they didn't have to make concessions in order to make Watson a marketable product down the line. The team built out a system that used parallel processing to parse language and get at what was being asked of the machine with any given clue. And I've talked about artificial neural networks recently, as in like last week's podcast, and how by using things like weighted values to help guide decisions, you can train machines on all sorts of stuff, from image recognition to making choices based off multiple criteria. That's essentially what this team did. 
And about 20 researchers spent three years working on the system to get to a point where it could be competitive. Now, by that time, Horn, the director, had left IBM. John Kelly had taken over the research department. And according to Horn, when he left, which was in 2007, it was early in the project, the team was still feeding old Jeopardy episodes, uh, the answers and the clues to Watson. And Watson had reached the level where it might on a good day defeat a typical five-year-old in a game of Jeopardy. But it was a far cry from being able to compete against former champions. Now, part of this training process involved feeding lots of information to Watson. This was used for a couple of big, important reasons. One was, obviously, to add to Watson's body of knowledge. And another was to improve Watson's mastery of language and wordplay. IBM had determined that the real challenge was to create a machine that would be self-contained. So it would rely on the data that had been fed to it in order to come up with answers. It would not be allowed to connect to the internet and look stuff up. So it could not tap into the total sum of human knowledge in an effort to answer a question. So in other words, IBM did not want Watson to be able to cheat, like that guy at your local pub trivia who always seems to be, quote-unquote, checking his messages during questions, because we all know that guy is actually Googling the answer to the question, what was the first music video shown on MTV, even though you know legitimately it was video killed the radio star by the Buggles. I'm sorry. Might have been projecting there a little bit. Anyway, Watson wasn't going to be allowed to cheat. So, the team began feeding massive amounts of information to Watson. Stuff like encyclopedias and reference books. And then the team made one other choice that sounded like a good idea at first, but quickly turned out to be a non-starter. A a wrong path, you might say. I'll explain more in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So, enter research scientist Eric Brown, who's leading up to Watson's Jeopardy appearance and was trying to solve this problem of clearing up linguistic ambiguity with Watson so that the platform could compete on Jeopardy properly. How do you teach a computer things like slang, which would be really important because, again, Jeopardy has a lot of wordplay in it. You cannot predict what sort of clues you might get. So how do you teach a computer slang? Well, you could do it with hundreds of man hours. That's not terribly efficient. It really wasn't a, a choice that they could go with. So Brown and his team tried an experiment. They fed the Urban Dictionary to Watson. The whole thing. Now, you've probably visited the Urban Dictionary, or you've heard one of its de definitions at some point, but where the heck did this online source come from? It launched back in 1999. It was originally intended to be a parody of Dictionary.com, and it uses a crowdsourced approach to incorporate new words and definitions to expand our uh our knowledge of and understanding of slang terms. So users can submit those to the site and other users can upvote or downvote entries and thus, in theory at least, the best responses will rise to the top and the most accurate definitions will be the ones that you see when you search for a term. It is not, however, a perfect system by any means. Slang words can have more than one meaning in a particular subculture. 
Uh, or it could have a meaning in one subculture and a totally different meaning in another subculture. And if one subculture has more representation on Urban Dictionary than the other, you're more likely to encounter that group's definition for any given term, and the other one would be underrepresented. And you don't really know anything about the people who are posting stuff there in the first place. It would be entirely possible to mob the site and post fictional slang words. You can make up a slang word. You can make up a definition for that slang word. And you could use the power of a community from a place like 4chan or from Reddit to boost that definition and make it seem like it's a real slang word. Then again, if people actually start to use that fake slang word, it can become a real slang word because language isn't static or predetermined. But for Watson, there was a different big problem with Urban Dictionary, and that was profanity. Because there's an awful lot of it on Urban Dictionary. Many of the slang words are offensive on the face of it. Even if the word itself is not overtly offensive, a lot of the definitions are uh, and the examples that are frequently given tend to be some of the most offensive material on Urban Dictionary. So the team had fed Watson all of this information. And soon they discovered that Watson had, well, developed a little bit of a potty mouth. And here, dear listeners, is where we find out how good my producer Tari is. Because it will be Tari's job to beep stuff out after I record this. I see her arch her eyebrow. Game on, says Tari. So Watson became incapable of differentiating between offensive words and non-offensive words. All words are equal in the eyes of Watson, you might say. So the system would rather matter-of-factly use swear words and slang as frequently as less offensive words in more formal language. According to Brown, at one point, Watson even referred to one piece of input as, and I quote, bullshit. Clearly, this wasn't going to fly on a game show that was airing on a major broadcast network. And so Brown and his team scraped all of the Urban Dictionary out of Watson, rolling it back to a more innocent time, let's say. And for good measure, they put in a filter to help block any profanity that might otherwise slip through. While Watson was initially launched as a pure research project, as the team developed the technology, they began to see other potential uses for it, including in the medical field. And IBM had opened up an application programming interface, or API, to allow developers to leverage Watson's capabilities in all sorts of ways. And Watson even took another crack at slang. In 2017, the Suncor Group began to incorporate Watson into its various insurance businesses in Australia. The Watson-powered technology would go over accident descriptions and insurance claims that were submitted by customers. And Watson would assign a level of confidence to its understanding of these claims whenever they would pop up. If the confidence level was high, Watson can handle the claim and fast-track it. This is similar to how Watson would actually compete on Jeopardy. It would come up with an answer, and it would assign a confidence level to that answer. How confident is Watson that the answer it came up with is, in fact, the correct one? And if it exceeded a certain threshold, Watson would buzz in. If it did not, Watson would not buzz in and would let someone else take it. In a similar way, if Watson is confident and understands that insurance claim goes on that fast track, but if it doesn't think it understands it properly— it would send it over to a human being to review that claim. Uh, 
So to train Watson, the team fed nearly 15,000 claim scenarios into the system and included the liability determination for each case. So Watson could understand what the various consequences were in each of those scenarios. And in that way, Watson was able to learn both the language and the parameters it was working within. And as far as I know, it never said that an insurance claim was total bullshit. The Watson stuff happened back in 2011. And you would think that by 2016, things would have improved dramatically. But that did not seem to be the case when our second entry popped up, and that would be the unfortunate chatbot known as Tay, T-A-Y. When Tay debuted uh, from Microsoft in 2016, things went awry pretty darn quickly. The purpose of Tay was, as Microsoft explained, to conduct an experiment in, quote, conversational understanding, end quote. So in other words, kind of creating a new methodology to create uh, human-computer interfaces by understanding natural language and, and creating a response from a computer that was perhaps more natural than those sort of cold, uh, computer-like responses that we tend to expect when we converse with what we know is a chatbot, when we know it's not an actual human being on the other side. Ideally, as Tay would interact with real live human beings, its ability to converse would improve. So in other words, the more it interacted with real people, the more like a real person Tay would behave. The tone was meant to be casual and playful. Microsoft said it was, uh, quote, AI fam from the internet that's got zero chill, end quote. And yes, I feel gross for saying that sentence out loud. But I didn't write it. I just quoted it. Tay was born out of a joint effort between Microsoft's technology and research team and a team from Bing, the search engine from Microsoft. They started out by taking a look at the sort of interactions that were happening online, and they started to mine those interactions to build out a baseline of communication tools. So essentially, they started training their their uh, their chatbot, Tay, by taking actual anonymized uh, messages that were pulled from the internet. They supplemented that with input from an editorial staff that included not just Microsoft employees, but people from outside the company, including improvisational comedians. And this was all in an effort to create a fun and somewhat irreverent chatbot that would communicate like a teenager on the internet. The Tay chatbot appeared on several different social media platforms, including Twitter, Kick, and GroupMe. And shortly after launch, trouble began. For one thing, you could send a command to Tay to, quote, repeat after me, end quote, which obviously would prompt Tay to repeat anything you typed to it. So, of course, people began typing horrible, terrible things to it so that it would repeat them. Things I'm not going to repeat on this podcast, even with Tari and her itchy trigger finger ready to beep every single offensive obscenity because that's how bad they were. They were hateful. A lot of them were racist messages or misogynistic messages. Pretty much every other ist you can think of that's negative could be applied to the messages that were sent to Tay. It was like the worst parts of the comments section of YouTube all directed its attention to this little poor innocent chatbot. And the chatbot 
dutifully following instructions, would repeat those things back. So, to be fair, that's not an indication that the AI itself went quote-unquote bad. It was a bad idea to include the repeat-after-me command. That's pretty certain. In fact, I, I can't believe that they did include that. It blows my mind that anyone would. I think anyone who has spent, I don't know, five minutes on the internet would tell you there's no way that's going to end well. And I'm even reminded of when I got my first sound card in the 1990s. It was a Sound Blaster sound card. It included on its software an app called Dr. Spazzo, which was essentially a variation on the old Eliza chatbot. The Eliza chatbot would sort of mimic a therapist. So those chatbots would essentially repeat stuff back to you, but they would do it in the form of a question. So if you typed in, I am angry, you might get a response like, why do you think you are angry? So it's, you know, going through this kind of process uh, like like a old school therapist. Dr. Spezzo would do the same thing, except Dr. Spezzo, because it was part of a sound card, would actually say these things, not just type it. So it would say, why do you think you are angry? Anyway, one of the things you could do with Dr. Spezzo was make him say stuff. You could tell him to say certain words, including swear words. And since I was a young teenager at the time, I figured that was the height of both technology and comedy. So it was the exact same thing that was going on with Tay, except what was happening with Tay was on a much larger basis and got way worse than my somewhat uninspired teenager mind could handle. Like, I didn't know <laughs> most of the words that were being used against Tay or make, uh, made to uh, Tay to repeat. If that was all that was going on with Tay, it might have been possible for Microsoft to disable the repeat after me feature and keep the chatbot around. But things actually got a bit weirder. I'll explain that more in a second, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Microsoft Tay wasn't prone to vulgarity all on its own, but after being told to repeat lots of terrible phrases, some of that stuff must have rubbed off. It began to pepper in some pretty dark stuff in its otherwise cheeky responses. So for example, when someone sent Microsoft Tay the question, is Ricky Gervais an atheist? Tay's response was, Ricky Gervais learned totalitarianism from Adolf Hitler, the inventor of atheism. Which seems odd, at the very least. Tay also would spout off stuff like saying that feminism was a cult, which made it sound more like a men's rights activist jerk face, but it would also post pro-feminism messages. So it was remarkably inconsistent with its worldview. And some points, it seemed like it was uh, all in favor of feminism and equality. And in others, it was anti-feminism, pro-men's rights. It was very weird. Microsoft first responded by going through and deleting the most offensive messages that were left on the various platforms. But Tay was kind of on a streak. And some of the stuff Tay was writing was way worse than what I have already quoted. So less than 24 hours after Tay had made its debut, Microsoft pulled the plug. So Tay was shut down less than 24 hours after it had first shown up online. It did resurface briefly the following week, but according to Microsoft, that was not actually on purpose. It was supposed to be an internal test on Microsoft servers, but someone must have left a setting, like 
open the internet access switch was in the on position or something. And so for a brief time, Tay was released back to the internet. And as far as I know, didn't say anything wildly inappropriate, although to be honest, the reports during that time are pretty sparse, but it was shut down again. Back in March 2018, Ingrid Angulo wrote a piece for CNBC about Facebook and YouTube coming under fire for offensive search autocomplete options, which is related to this. Stick with me. So the problem was that as people began typing in search terms, like they're looking for a video about something, the suggested completed searches that would pop up would frequently contain offensive or upsetting results. Both Facebook and YouTube representatives said that wasn't the fault of their system. It was rather reflective of what people were actually searching for online. The logic is that if there are a lot of people who are searching for the same terms, that term must be particularly important or trending at that moment. So more and more people are going to keep looking for it. And thus, when someone new starts typing in search terms, there's a good chance that they want the same stuff that everybody else wanted. So if a lot of people are searching for something really awful, it's not a big surprise that that same phrase will pop up as a suggested autocomplete. Now, Angulo pointed out that, like Tay, these search features had no ethical guidelines or boundaries. They were just vomiting back the stuff that was being fed into them. So they provided an unfiltered reflection of some of the worst stuff on the internet. And this approach is incredibly vulnerable to exploitation. If a group thinks it might be funny to make a particularly offensive concept or phrase trend, they can make a concentrated effort to make that happen just by spamming the search engines of those various platforms to look for offensive content. Even if that content doesn't actually exist on the platform, the nature of the search tool would offer it up for autocomplete. So, I don't know. If you wanted to get a huge group together, and let's let's think of something not terrible because I don't like thinking of really dark stuff, especially when I'm trying to have a nice happy day. So let's say we're all looking for something ridiculous, like um, orange swallows strawberry. That doesn't make any sense, right? But if I get a big online community to go on and everyone is searching orange swallows strawberry, then that's going to pop up as an autocomplete function, assuming that the search is counting every single time people are searching for this and saying, this must be something important because so many people are searching for it. Even if there's no video on YouTube, let's say, that is remotely close to what I'm searching for, the autocomplete could still pop up that way just because so many people have already posted that into search. That's kind of what I'm talking about. You can game the system. Well, months after Tay had her flame out, I really should say it's flame out, Microsoft kind of positioned Tay to have sort of a female personality, but of course it was just an artificial intelligence chatbot and pretty low on the AI scale too, if you ask me. Anyway, Microsoft introduced a new chatbot just a few months after Tay had that disastrous uh, debut. The new chatbot is called Zoe, Z-O. Zoe's avatar now is of a young woman. Uh, when I chatted with Zoe, I asked Zoe how old she is, and she said that she is 22, always 22, which I thought was kind of funny. Don't know if that's 
the same response every time. I only asked it the one time. I chatted with Zoe a little bit while researching for this show. The conversation did not turn dark, but I also wasn't really pushing for it because I feel weird doing that, even from a research perspective. I'm just not that kind of person who likes to be, like, go to dark places like that. So... I'm not the right person to do that kind of investigative journalism. I fully admit that. I will say that other uh, online journals posted results where they got some pretty weird stuff from Zoe, including some dark stuff, uh, just through normal conversation without even necessarily attempting to guide the conversation that way. But I did not have that particular experience, which may mean that Microsoft has made numerous tweaks since then. But I did ask Zoe what the best Halloween costume is, and Zoe's response was tuxedo, luchador mask, and a champion title belt. And I find it very difficult to argue against that. I think that really might very well be the best Halloween costume I could go with. According to an article on Quartz, Zoe will try to shut down any conversation related to religion or politics. And you could argue this is Microsoft's effort to not fall into the same trap that the company did with Tay. But Chloe Rose Stewart-Ullen, who wrote the piece on Quartz, argues that this sanitized version of the chatbot is just as bad or maybe even worse than Microsoft Tay was. And she argues that the philosophy to shut down any pathway that might overlap with religion or politics leads to a path of censorship without the benefit of context. That because the AI doesn't really understand the context of the message, any message containing a flagged word would trigger the shutdown response. And that this ultimately limits the utility of the chatbot, which is supposed to work as a way for young people, like we're talking teenagers, early 20s, uh, being able to converse freely with this chatbot. It might work as a curiosity, but it would render the chatbot useless in several real-world implementations because it would shut down at the first sign of a flagged term. She actually used the response or uh, the example of uh, if someone were to write, uh, they're, they're using the chatbot in order to vent, to, uh, to, to express their feelings. Perhaps they're being bullied at school was an example. And maybe they're being bullied at school because they belong to a particular group. So maybe it's because they are Jewish or Muslim. But because that's associated with religion, Zoe would shut it down and thus deny the person the path they need in order to express these feelings and try to work through them. And it could be a very harmful experience in that regard. So the point that she was making was that this is a very tricky path to walk down. It's very hard to do in a responsible way where the AI chatbot isn't being overtly offensive, but also isn't shutting down legitimate paths of discussion. Uh, I think the stories of Watson, Tay, and Zoe tell us an awful lot about human nature, probably more about human nature than it tells us about computer science. I've noticed that when a company comes out with something brand new, there's a spectrum of responses, but two of the most passionate responses I tend to see to new stuff, new stuff debuting in technology, are, I want to know how that works, and I want to break that. And sometimes they're coming from the same people. They want to break it in order to learn how it works. 
It's not necessarily that there's any deep-seated malicious intent there. It's more about satisfying curiosity. But sometimes people will go a really ugly route in order to satisfy their curiosity. They're not thinking about necessarily the consequences of that route. They're thinking of the end result. Oh, now I have a better understanding of how this works. Not paying attention to the fact that in the process of learning that, they've perhaps really... Uh, offended or or worse, uh, done done actual harm to people in the process, either directly or indirectly. So yeah, the stories might tell us more about us as people than it does about the design of chatbots. But chatbots are becoming more and more prevalent. A lot of designers have learned lessons from those other examples and have built in filters and machine learning models to help limit the influence users can have on chatbot behavior so that the chatbot doesn't gradually change its methodology over the course of many interactions because that obviously can be gamed. It's uh, also a case where uh, the chatbots are are better able to determine which user responses are genuine versus attempts to manipulate the system. So, for example, if it's a, a customer service chatbot that's fielding uh, customers who are asking for help for something – Chances are there's going to be a lot of upset customers. They're very, very rarely do you get a happy customer wanting to talk to customer service. It's usually an unhappy customer who's dealing with something that is of, uh, you know, of immediate importance. And so the chatbot needs to be able to determine which responses might be strongly worded but genuine requests for action versus somebody who's just spewing off garbage in an effort to try and, you know, mess the system up. Uh, So it's kind of taught designers to be a bit more cynical in their designs, which is apparently a necessity and also kind of a shame. Ultimately, work is continuing in numerous labs all around the world, building up machines that are better able to sort through natural language and respond appropriately. And to be fair, I think I'm doing the same thing. Uh, Goodness knows there are times where I am having difficulty Uh, with interpreting the meaning behind a phrase, or perhaps I respond a little too quickly to a tweet that upsets me, and then I immediately think I should probably take a time out before I hit that tweet button. Tari's saying that I should probably do the same thing for my interpersonal interactions, particularly when I'm talking with my producer and, and yelling at her. It's a hard knock life. Well, guys, that wraps up this discussion about rude AI. And and again, on the surface, this is pretty funny, but it does tell you that there are a lot of things that we need to take into consideration when we're designing artificially intelligent systems because these things can behave in ways that surprise us. Uh, often, AI will encounter a situation that it was not expressly programmed to handle. So it has to make some choice, even if that choice is no choice at all. That's still something. And until it does, you may not have any idea of what the outcome is going to be. With a social media chatbot, that might just be kind of funny or unfortunate or embarrassing. But with an autonomous car or any other autonomous system that's that's doing like, you know, manufacturing work, that kind of stuff – It could be very serious. It could have dire consequences if things do not go the right way. So it is important to keep that in mind. 
And I think it's always good to just kind of keep that keep keep yourself in a grounded position when you're talking about AI and you're thinking about the possibilities of the future. Because as as bullish as I am on artificial intelligence, I do try to keep in mind that ultimately these are systems designed by people, and sometimes the stuff we design doesn't work the way we thought it would. And we need to be careful about that. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff or you've got um, any other comments or requests, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you go to techstuffpodcast.com? That's our new website. There you're going to find all the different ways to contact the show, either email or Twitter or Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Plus, you're going to find links to our store where you can go and buy Tech Stuff merchandise. Every purchase goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 